Welcome to Decolonizing Sexuality, where we have intellectual conversations that change the way we think about sexuality and question if that may have an impact on how we think about everything else. This is your host. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Decolonizing Sexuality. Thank you so much for listening once again. I'm really excited about today because today is the official Pride episode. And what that means is that I'm going to be probably talking a lot more about aromanticism and this whole entire episode is going to be about the A in LGBTQIA because it is um, severely uh, misrepresented, underrepresented, as well as asexual. That definitely is underrepresented as well. But because I wanted to talk about some things that I was proud of today... I'm going to air my decolonizing love episode, and that is actually with Millie Boella. So as I said before, I'm very proud to be a romantic. I found out back in, I think, January of last year. Oh, no, January of this year. Oh my God, that's like not that long. <laughs> wow. Um, it seems like it's been quite the incredible journey since then to the point of where I mean, I've taken it, I've run with it to the point of where it feels like it's not very new for me. It was something that I already knew, but now there's just a label about it. Um, And it really helped me heal some of my deepest core wounds around relational dynamics. And so that's why I think that it is very important to know, I think it is very important to know some of these labels if it is something that you kind of need um that you kind of need like a network of experience around whenever you are whenever you're joining groups around that are centered around different labels you can really see uh and not take for granted a lot of the experiences that you've had and a lot of people have had similar experiences to me, when it has come, when, when it comes to aromanticism, and that's how I found out that that was something that I would identify with. So every aromantic person has their own brand of aromanticism. And for me personally, I would consider mine to be interchangeable with the concept of relational anarchy, which is a a term that was already coined. So I use the term relational instead of relationship because the word relationship has often been co-opted by a romance normative perspective. So in the concrete, that means that you really can't say the words relationship without people assuming that there is a romantic connotation attached to that word. So my aromanticism is based on these main tenets which is adapted from a relationship anarchist manifesto from gomakesoap.tumblr.com. It was just the best way that I could explain it. I already had these tenets, but, you know, it was the best way to kind of explain through this adaptation of this work. So, number one, all of my relational dynamics are as valid as the other ones. There, There's no hierarchy. So, for example, I'm not prone to automatically prioritizing one person over another in my life because I prioritize all members of my community equally. So which I found, I mean, I've found this automatically frees me up from any fear of being too eager and that kind of those kinds of weird judgments because everyone who's close to me 
knows that there's nothing wrong with being eager to relate. And basically what I'm saying is the whole playing it cool bullshit is toxic and overrated as fuck. In this relational climate, and I'm talking about even before the pandemic, out of those who wish to relate to someone else, I'm thinking like, who the fuck wouldn't be eager to relate in a world that is so based on social media to the point of where it drives loneliness. So number two, I perceive intimacy, sex, and love as three completely separate attributes. They can complement one another, but also be wanted or needed independently. Number three, my care or desire for one person does not detract from my care or desire for another. So for me, it just it, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not, that's what I had to acknowledge, that not everyone has this orientation around relational dynamics. That was something that I really had to dig deep on and realize that like, okay, I am pissing other people off because they are romance normative in some of these other situations. And like, just things would just get awkward. So, uh, and painful too, you know, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So number four, in the spirit of true relational anarchy, I will respect all forms of relational dynamic in which the individuals, individuals involved are happy and fulfilled. So this includes typical monogamy, which I may choose for myself if I wish at any point, right? Number five, monogamy, institutional marriage, the nuclear family, etc., are social constructs that are not inherently right or wrong. So I think it's very important for everyone to be able to respect the ways that everyone decides to relate to others. And so the reason why I'm blasting aromanticism is not to create a polarity between aromanticism and romanticism or anything of that nature. It really is just about understanding that what happens, what typically happens is that people are, a lot of people are inherently romance normative and they press that social construct onto people who are not. So of course, everything in every way to relate is equally valid, right? So number six, I am honest and open with my partners or potential partners. I felt like it was significantly more ethical when I decided to practice relational anarchy. The amount of trust and communication involved is extremely high. Um, number seven, I do not have a sense of possession. Like inherently, I don't have a, a sense of possession over another person. And I seek partners who don't really feel a sense of possession over their partners, which would include me, right? So I find that insecurities like jealousy are less likely to happen in these dynamics because of the initial premise that love and desire for one doesn't detract from love and desire for another. There's honestly plenty, like, I guess from my point of view, I see this as there's plenty of love to go around, you know? <laughs> so I felt so much more accepted in dynamics like this because I am an extremely loving person and I don't want to stop cuddling with my friends just to call myself monogamous. Like, what is that really going to do for me? Um, so I'm like, it wasn't a healthy trade-off for me. You know, everyone is different, but my personal growth and development, I would say, is based on a trajectory of further expansion over time. And for some others, that may be closing things in and making things more exclusive. And that's great, too. It just doesn't resonate with me. So I think it's also very important to remember that making things more rigid is no more inherently sacred 
than making things more expansive. And if you don't like the word sacred, like it's no more inherently deep than making things more expansive. But unfortunately, we have often been taught to believe that a trajectory of further rigidity over time is the only way to make things sacred. And I think that this rhetoric often comes from a long history of Christianization used as a tool for colonization. And of course, I'm not bashing any religion by any means here. Religion itself is not necessarily a problem. It's the fact that it was used as a tool for colonization that we're looking at in this context, which could translate into us automatically being conditioned into thinking that rigid always equals sacred, or like a trajectory of further rigidity over time always equals sacred. When there are many more ways to see that. There are many more. Like I ask myself, you know, what is sacred to you? And if that word has too religious of a context for people, then what is, mo what is both deep and contemplative for you? And if that's eating Oreos and playing video games and watching Saturday Night Live, then it's fucking valid, fam. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? So I want to go into some common assumptions that aromantic people get on a regular basis, because then I think it shows you the importance of understanding that, hey, this is real. People actually really face issues behind these things, right? So um, a lot of common phrases are like, you just haven't found that special person yet, you know? And I'm just like, what? I'm like a person that's going to all of a sudden change my whole entire philosophy around relational dynamics and make it hierarchical or make it hierarchical. To me, that sounds like a step back into colonization more than a step forward for me from the perspective of my personal development as a trajectory of constant expansion over time. Now, does that necessarily mean that's also another assumption you can make that does that mean that I am sleeping with everybody that I see or that I'm cuddling with everybody that I see? No, that is not what that means. And I think that a lot of people, you know, like if we're talking about a lot of the, because polyamory is often under, um, or it's, it's a subset of relational anarchy. Um, and I think that, you know, I am polyamorous, um, even though I do not experience romantic attraction. So I think a lot of times people make these assumptions that all of these things are tied together, right? That like you have to experience, you know, like here's one that's big, like aesthetic attraction versus sexual attraction, that people can absolutely appreciate the way that a person looks, their personality, and absolutely freaking love the way that they present themselves in the world, not just visually, but you know, like personality, their inner world, all of that. You can do that without necessarily being romantically attracted, and you don't have to be sexually attracted. You know? So I think a lot of people really do make these assumptions. It's very common. Um, people may pathologize aromanticism, you know, like I hear people say like, oh, it sounds like you might be too traumatized to want to be in a romantic relationship. Like maybe you should, you know, just go get that checked out. And I'm just like, yes, in some situations, yes, that is, yeah. I mean, it's a thing, but it's not inherently a thing. And I think it's very important for people to realize that like in some situations that might be true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the data is going to say that 100% of people are going to be like that. And as a, matter of, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't even say 50%. I would say under 
um, from the data that I have gathered so far. But of course, I haven't gathered like official research. And I think it's very important for people to, I think it's very important for people to be gathering research um, on aromantic people, people who practice relational anarchy, etc. So, you know, I think it's hilarious that people pathologize these things because I'm like, it's, I've talked to so many aromantic people who have, since coming out to at least themselves, even if it's not anybody else, feel much more whole than ever before. And like I said before, finding out that I was aromantic helped me heal one of my deepest core wounds around relational dynamics. You know, people say arrow for short. Although arrow people don't experience romantic attraction, they do often experience profound platonic and or queer platonic attraction or love very deeply, which is why I was always stuck pathologizing myself. I was always ashamed that I would come across as too loving or too friendly with people. And, you know, I, I would feel like I would just step on people's societal, you know, the pre-existing societal boundaries. And it was just always scary for me. And, you know, compound that with being socialized as female, you know, that took a toll for a while. I was always holding back and especially around cis men because I didn't want to give them the misconception that I was romantically interested in them. And there's so much around that. There's so much misogyny around that um, for us to have to hold that for women and for uh, femme passing or female passing individuals to have to carry that emotional labor, you know, just because of a societal expectation that, you know, like, it's significantly more upsetting for men. And a lot of times men feel entitled to just all of a sudden become assholes when, when you say like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, romantically attracted to you. And then they think that you're leading them on and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just like, this is crazy. <laughs> so anyway, let me introduce some people to the term queer platonic because you may not know what that is. And it essentially means queering up or playing with or changing up the norms of platonic friendships. So you could see this is more of a spectrum than a rigidity. It can be seen as like a more gray area between friendship and romance or completely outside of that binary, which is how I define. I, I define as experience, experiencing alterous attraction, which is a subset under aromanticism. So things like saying, I love you, like cohabitation, nesting partnership, cuddling, and other forms of physical affection are all typical decisions of those in queer platonic partnerships. So you might ask, like, what would be the, what, well, what's the difference between that and a romantic partnership, right? Well, the underlying premises and expectations of romantic partnerships are challenged and questioned, and especially aspects of relational hierarchy and prioritization above the rest of your community and or relational ecosystem. So perhaps concepts of dating are questioned and any aspects in dating customs that are seen as inherently unhealthy are openly discussed, communicated, questioned, challenged, and conscious and intentional decisions are made about how queer platonic partnerships are formed and sustained. So that's the way that I would explain it. Being socialized as male often comes with toxic masculinity that's like oh well you can't you can't really have strong emotional connections with others unless it is romantic <laughs> you know um so it's really interesting so you know between i've noticed that my queer platonic my queer platonic partnerships between other females were just like not an issue right but if it's between two parties who can pass as male and female 
then queer platonic love is almost always filtered into a romantic expectation because of toxic masculinity, like I said. So I think of a queer platonic relationship I'm in now that when we walk around outside, people will always try to pressure us into dating romantically. Like I noticed, like it was like one of the last times we were walking outside together, like there was somebody who just like randomly stopped us and they were like, are you all dating? And we were just like, no. <laughs> they were, <laughs> and it was so weird because they were like, oh, you all are totally about to date. I can totally tell. And I'm just like, yeah, you can shove that intuition up your ass. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Um, so I've had situations where I felt that I was too loving to realize that I could potentially be seen as a threat to people's established romantic partnerships as well. Because to take one example, my desire to cuddle with a person that I consider myself emotionally close to isn't read by me as an inherent threat to a pre-established romantic partnership. However, the reality is that those who experience romantic attraction may see that as a threat. So I, and I completely understand that now that I understand more about what it's like to not experience romantic attraction. So I just had to become more aware of that, right? You know, and I think about how hurtful these kinds of dynamics can be in situations where I'll use A and B to denote different passing genders, where A is aromantic and experiencing queer platonic attraction, and B is not familiar with queer platonic attraction or seeing attraction or, you know, not even used to seeing attraction on a spectrum and more likely to see it maybe like on the typical relationship escalator, um, which I will uh, put in the description below. But what happens when that kind of um, like dissonance and dynamic, what happens with that dissonance is that B can automatically assume that the warm feelings that person A is radiating towards them have to mean that they're experiencing romantic and sexual attraction. And to be put in that box over and over and over again, think about how traumatizing for person A that could be when they just want to show love in all of its purity and can potentially make them ashamed for being too loving to the point of where it doesn't fit into these socially prescribed boxes. So for example, there would be many times where I would experience profound queer platonic love for people. And I was afraid of being eventually cut off completely by them because it had happened before once they had found a romantic partner or if they have a romantic partner already, you know, that would consider me a threat. And while, of course, it is a person's right to prioritize whatever they want to prioritize, but the fact that it's already an automatic expectation that friendships are seen as lower on a hierarchy can be severely detrimental to the mental health of those who identify as aromantic. So I found in my experience that the queer platonic vibe is perceived by the romance normative as kind of this about to date or kind of this entering into romance territory vibe. So I realized that I needed to back off in different ways whenever things would happen, but it sure doesn't mean that it wasn't painful, you know what I'm saying? But it was really amazing to find groups of people who were talking about these same points of pain. So it eventually helped me heal it. And I'm extremely grateful to have found this label. So hopefully you can see the importance of knowing something like this about yourself if you are aromantic, or the importance of understanding what it is like to be an ally for aromantic individuals, even if you are romance normative, right? Like that doesn't matter. Because there are a lot of wounds that can be healed from this amazing self-discovery. So I'll put some resources in the description below about it because there are some great visual aids that help people understand some very important distinctions.
So hopefully that gives you a little glossary of words and concepts that we'll be discussing in this episode. And if there are any others, then I'll leave them in the episode description below. So now that we have all of that out of the way, I am really excited to introduce Millie Boella to you today. Millie Boella is a published writer, decolonizing consultant, and artivist. She's been the executive director of a drop-in center, lead coordinator, and host of the Masamadi Film Festival, which is the largest Black queer film festival in Canada, and founder of Toronto Non-Monogamous BIPOC. She now runs a consultancy on decolonizing love, where she and her nesting partner coach clients on how to design ethical non-monogamous relationships and date interracially while unpacking white supremacy, among other matters. So I was late to our conversation because I was experiencing some tech difficulties. And so I started out by apologizing. And I got my whole entire life from the fact that Millie took us into a conversation about perspectives on time in African cultures being very different compared to European culture. From that, which was an excellent segue into a wonderful conversation. So you may hear some overlapping in us talking towards the middle and end of the episode because there was a technical delay, but the value of the podcast means a lot more to me and I know that you'll get that compared to any brief tech issue, but just letting you know. All right, so let's get into this. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy.
Yes. Yes. Absolutely grateful. All right. Thank you all so much for listening once again. I love making these episodes, so I'm looking forward to our future ones as well. I also want to say that one of my deepest core values is to be or provide a container for the unification of all perceived opposites. So what that really means is that an us versus them mentality is not something that I support. So my personal boundaries have much more to do with if you abuse me, you're going to lose me than any specific markers like race, gender, etc. So the blackness and whiteness rhetoric can sometimes feel like us versus them to me. And that's why I want to come forward and officially say, just in case y'all don't know yet, that an us versus them dynamic is not condoned on this podcast by any means. It's my intention to strike a healthy balance because it's important to talk about these issues, but it's also important not to lose the biggest picture, which is that narcissistic dynamics through dominant culture are a contagion that has affected every race, creed, and culture on the planet for many, many years and was prevalent even in pre-colonial societies. And I think that a lot of people don't look into this, but looking into this means that we are turning around and looking into our own generational shadows as much as we look at whiteness, not to continue blame or scapegoating of BIPOC people, but just simply how we can heal from narcissistic dynamics so that we don't perpetuate these us versus them dynamics. So you might be asking how in the world do I even start doing that, right? Well, I think it would be awesome if BIPOC looked into their pre-colonial histories to spot these signs of this narcissistic contagion even before colonization existed. And this, in my opinion, is how we can maintain balance instead of perpetuated polarization, right? Perceived polarization, all of that. Also known as the us versus them dynamics, the divide and conquer dynamics, all the stuff we don't like but can get stuck in unintentionally because we don't turn around and look at our own generational trauma. I wanted to make sure that I said that before proceeding any further into these podcast episodes so that nobody gets it twisted, you know? So I know that a lot of places have started to open back up with regards to the pandemic. So everybody, please be safe, be well, and of course, happy pride. Know that I am thinking of each and every one of you and that I'm sending a lot of love out to you in this special month. May you feel deeply seen, deeply known, and deeply represented. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>